we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Ben Kantak and you're listening to Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. This episode, I'm chatting to Amrik Modu. Following his entrepreneurial mindset, Amrik started and sold a bunch of businesses before ultimately starting Lord of the Trees in 2019, a company that uses drone technology to help reforest landscapes. On this episode, we talk about drones, the benefits of high-tech and low-tech, to tackle some of the current challenges and why indigenous knowledge and support from local communities is a key to the success of his company's work. Welcome, Emmerich. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here. Um, I'm really, really excited about this conversation because I stumbled across um, the work that you're doing with Lord of the Trees through an article that um, someone sent me um, a while ago. And uh, I did some digging and, and, and read up about what you're doing. And um, it's, it's a really interesting journey. You're not uh, into the whole environmental management space by design. You started out a little bit different. You, you were marketing originally. I did marketing uh, for 10 years when I lived in the States. Um, <clears throat> but I've always been a greenie inside. So uh, ever since I was a kid, this was always in my blood. Um, when I was a kid, I would save animals. So I would actually drive my mom crazy. Uh, I had a collection of uh, little empty matchboxes by my bed, and I would collect uh, snails with a broken shelf, or um, I would collect, um, or I would pick up ants, you know, like the, the single yeah, ant, yeah. because I thought in my mind when I was a kid, I thought the ant was lost, so I had to care for it. So I had this uh collection of of little tiny um matchboxes by my bed and growing up I've, I've always i mean i grew up in in the countryside of, i was just about to say you're a country boy mm, yeah, yeah yeah definitely i grew up in the in, in the vineyards of bordeaux and uh, so i was always surrounded by nature animals uh you know insects and um i i had a passion for the environment ever since i was a kid but um, then you still decided to to run for America and just and just you know yeah. explore that 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 whole country. How how, yeah. how what what set your set your heart on America? Well, I I did that when I, I moved to the states when I was seventeen. This was a dream when I was a kid. So I, as I was growing up, I. Um, I had this passion of cowboys and Indians, and I've always said to my parents, even as a little kid, I said, one day I'm going to move to America, one day I'm going to move to America. So I think they probably heard that like a million times. They were glad when you were gone and finally did that. <laughs> maybe thought, oh, he gets it out of his system, and after a week he comes back and says, it's not as great as everyone says. No, I actually made a deal with them when I left because, I mean, it was a big it was a big deal um, at the time. You know, I was the first one to leave home yeah um and 
I was going to the States for just six months, and six months turned into 10 years. I moved to the States. I was 17. Um, I, I, I did marketing mm-hmm. first for, for Disney World. Um, Which is a pretty cool gig, I have to say. I was, mean, you know. It was amazing. It was a fantastic, um, it was a great school. Mm. You know, I mean, it was obviously a team of us uh, in, yeah. in the marketing department, yeah. uh, but it was incredible. It was absolutely yeah. amazing. And uh, I did that for three and a half years. Then I moved to California for the last four years and I did marketing for LVMH, Louis yeah. Vuitton. Yeah. Um, and that was incredible as well. You know, this this was one of the, the best uh, French brand uh, that I could work for. And after 10 years in the States, I this, I, I thought it was time to do something different. Yeah, but, and, I, and I feel that's exactly it. That's a little bit of a thing with you. you. You know, going to America for a little while and then you stay 10 years and then kind of the same thing happened when you decided, oh, well, you know what, just give Australia a go. I just see see how what it's like. And then uh, you, you're here ever since 17 years now. Mm. Um, and, and onto the marketing thing, I feel also marketing is such an important skill to have no matter what you want to do whether you know you whether you want to strengthen the brand or whether you want to do use it for another cause you know Mm. let's say climate change or environmental issues or whatever so background in marketing is definitely mighty helpful we all know that in the times of you know over saturation of news and the the noise is so loud out there you you need to know how to how to play the game so to say i mean we all have have our stories i'm originally from germany married an australian and then eventually ended up here there are a lot of people you run into that are not australian born that have their own little story and journey how what was it that that kept you here for now 17 years and <laughs> didn't make you go back to, to the Bodo region. Yeah, it's a funny story. I actually didn't plan to move to Australia. I came here for two weeks. Mm. It was a holiday. And um, I, uh, I, so I first arrived in Sydney. I've always been in Sydney. And um, after two or three days, I was in the botanical garden and I, so I, I do have this um, little, not a tradition, but it's something that I always do. Um, when I lived, um, as soon as I, uh, at 17, when I started traveling and I moved to the States and I, I traveled extensively in um, in America, North America and South America, I've always, every time I go to a different city or different country, I always spend the first day at the botanical garden that's something that's a good tradition <laughs> that's, that's something a very I've, good tradition yeah. something i've always done and when i moved to sydney i went to the botanical garden and this was uh in september the day was absolutely gorgeous if you can picture the, the, the sky was mm. blue you know that that blue that you yes. can only find in sydney yeah there was not a cloud in the sky and um for the listeners who don't know the Royal Botanical Garden of Sydney, it's the setting. I mean, it is one of the best botanical gardens yeah. I have ever seen in it's, my whole it's life. Gorgeous. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's yeah. right on the water, and and the water was shimmering. The, the 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 light of the sun, and in the background there was the opera house, and it was it was just magical. <laughs> I had never seen anything <laughs> like that. And you had you know those those parrots in in the trees, and it was it was just extraordinary, and. I was just taken by the beauty and, and, you know, everything that was happening. And I just paused for one second. And for the first time in my life, I had this feeling that I had arrived. 
Yeah. I don't know how to explain it. I never it it never happened anywhere uh before that I've been. Yeah. But it was this feeling like I had arrived and it was a really nice um it was a really nice feeling and I really uh honored that and everything that happened after. So as I said I only came here for 2 weeks. Um made me uh, decide to actually stay here and try to see if I could uh, if I could make a life here. And I feel that is something <clears throat> that you hear from a lot of people who who ended up staying and you know for many years that something there mm. that just you know exactly that feeling that moment where it, it is just right mm. and you just feel it you mm. can't even describe it mm. it's just a feeling. And I wasn't even looking. You know, like sometimes yeah. you look yeah. and and you. It found you. You, you do things, yeah, or you plan to. You like, oh, I'm gonna go. To, I'm, I'm gonna go to Sydney and see if it's good for me. Well, I wasn't even in that space. Yeah. I really was not. I was really here for just two weeks. Which is, which is an advantage, I guess, as well, because you, you know, you, you, you just, it just you just get taken aback by it and it just does something to you. Hmm. I mean, you clearly figured out a way to stay longer than <laughs> your two weeks. Then you went back to uni here and followed that. Um, that passion for caring for the environment, obviously, hmm. and uh, went back to university and got a master's in environmental management. Um, and then eventually, a few years back in 2019, you founded Lord of the Trees. Yep. What what was the motivation behind Lord of the Trees? How did you come up with, uh, with starting the company? Yeah, so I... Um... Uh, you're right, I went back to uni, I went to UNSW here in Sydney. And um, when I graduated, I started my own business. So I have ever since, uh, so it's been 10 years since I left uni, I have um, oh, 15 years now, um, I started my own business. I first started with a, an organic baby company, mm-hmm. which I grew for a few years, I sold that. Then I did uh, trade shows to do with sustainability, same thing, I, I did that and I sold the business. A few years after, I went to um, something completely different. I did uh, property management for short-term rental, nothing to do <laughs> nothing to do with the environment. I was like, I'm just gonna have a crack at that and uh, <laughs> get it. it out of the system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always wanted to try real estate, so uh, it was a good experience. I did that for four and a half years. And when I let that go, I really went back to... The 12-year-old boy. Yeah, to yeah. questioning myself and yeah. to be like, okay, why? what is it that I really, really like and that I really, really enjoy? And um, I was thinking about the reasons that actually brought me here. And um, as soon as this became clear... A couple of days later, there was uh, completely randomly on, on the TV was a, a documentary by David Attenborough. The great David Attenborough, <laughs> the yeah. The great David Attenborough. Um, and he was talking about, uh, he was reporting from the Galapagos Islands. Yes. And explaining how um, the Galapagos Island evolved over millions of years from a blurb of lava random in, in in randomly that randomly appeared in the middle of the ocean to a tropical ecosystem to to what it is today and he started to talk about how the seeds uh, the first seeds were carried by cold currents so namely the big seeds like coconut seeds mm-hmm. that would uh, float from the west coast of the Americas and land um, um, on the Galapagos Island. Then came the little seeds that would be light enough to be carried by wind yeah. uh, and land on the island and germinate. 
and the last one that had the best chances of survival were the ones that were carried by birds. And when he said that, on the on the TV was on the screen was the picture of a seagull doing a dropping, and that was my haha moment. I was like, I always knew from um, um, from a long time that I wanted to do something. Uh, with, uh, in regards to climate change, I knew there was a big need to mm. replant forest and to restore ecosystem at a faster rate than we destroy the planet. And that was it. In that moment when I saw that, I was like, this is it. I'm going to replace the birds with drones and I'm going to create my own seed pods and I'm going to reforest the planet. That's a pretty cool light bulb moment. <laughs> David Attenborough... <laughs> seagulls droppings and you go wait a minute bird poop drones that poop seed seeds that that's great that's the connection um <laughs> the question that i had instantly because that is i mean it makes total sense you know when you think about it now but the drones because obviously you know that's a very techy thing drones mm. everywhere right now were you involved with drone technology prior to that or absolutely not i love that no I love that. So, so I do have I do have someone in the team who is. Uh, I saw that like a professional drone. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But you had you didn't fly a drone no. once in your life before no. that. You no. no idea. No. But that's even better. That makes the whole thing even better. Um, obviously, that's that's something I wanted to talk about. Clearly, emulating nature. So basically, not replacing birds. You know, negative tongues could say, "Oh, you're replacing birds." Um, you, you said we need a tech, technological solution. To, to reforest, replant faster than humans destroy yeah. and deforest. And deforestation obviously is a massive issue. Mm. Um, I'm wondering, because there's, there's other things as well, like nano drones replacing honeybees. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that that's yeah. a field that, that there's a lot of scientists looking into that. How can we, you know, assist bees or with, with, it, with bees dying? Um, you know, how, what can we do with nano drones there? And there is also some pushback of people saying, kind of we are replacing nature you know is that maybe a conflict of interest should we not maybe focus more on preserving animals before we replace them with tech that can't be the solution what are your thoughts on this yeah so the example that you gave about the bees is very interesting because um in the line of work that we do we so we restore ecosystem we mm. Planting trees is one aspect of what we do, but we have a more holistic view on, yeah. on, on, uh, on the projects that we handle and we do restore ecosystem. And when, when I say we restore ecosystem, even when it, uh, when it comes to planting forest, we do uh, create uh, uh, corridors for pollinators mm. like bees because I believe that... Um, uh, replacing the animals with technology is not the answer. So um, when it comes to bees, if you look, you, you have to understand what is the problem that um, creates or, or that supports the decline of the bee collapse yeah. right throughout the planet. Um, and once you understand that, if we, we need to find ways to mitigate those um, um, elements in order to help the bees if you just go in and replace the bees then what's the point right that's exactly i think the criticism yeah. that's behind exactly. it that's very narrow-minded exactly it's not going to be the solution you Correct. have to be more holistic okay Correct. so when it comes to restoring ecosystem and uh, uh whether we plant trees whether we we recreate um um uh uh, corridors for pollinators, etc. We have the same approach. We're not trying to 
um, emulate nature or like yeah, imitate well, nature? Well, we're not trying to replace birds and, and this because we actually we are encouraging with what we do the the ecosystem that would flourish here. We're, we're just giving nature a, a hand. Yeah, a boost. Yeah, a you, boost. You assist nature, yeah. yeah. No, I love that. I, and I, like I said, I'm not biased about it, but that's something <clears throat> that I read. You know, there was a critique by people looking at the nano nano drone mm. idea of bees, but mm. it makes absolute sense that what you're doing, you're basically just supporting a healthy environment in which not only bees, I mean, insects yeah, yeah, in yeah, general yeah. are in such a big decline to just yeah. you know, just restore mm. their natural habitat right. and help them, yeah. So our philosophy is from the ground up. So we never start with, we actually never ever start with the trees, yeah. ever. We start from the soil. We make sure the ecology of the soil and everything that we don't see from macro-rhizom uh, in the soil yeah. to um, so the macro-rhizom that, that support fungi and then all the invertebrates, so uh, the worms, the little insects that crawl uh, on okay. the forest floor. So it's a multi-step process Correct. leading up. Yeah, it's yeah. not just you fly a drone over and no, drop stuff. No, okay, Because no, no. that's a little bit, obviously, you know, that might, some people might jump to that. Mm. And I myself was also wondering, is there a multi-step process Correct. leading up to the to the how do you call it, the precision planting and i want to talk about that in a bit yeah. but so it's a, again a more holistic approach right. how, yeah so we call it it's called chrono sequencing of yeah. reforestation so we build um we first build uh the mother forest mm -hmm. which is the ground floor the ground covers and once this is healthy and once that supports um a plethora of uh insects animals that we know um in the future are going to support uh, smaller plants um, that are uh, in their turn supporting the invert like you know the birds the bees the pollinators then that's when we start to introduce the, the bigger species that will make the uh, mid canopy and the upper canopy of the forest or any ecosystem that we are um, working with that's fascinating that's really fascinating so it takes we we give ourselves um between three to five years, depending where you plant. So mm -hmm. in, in tropical environment, it's, it's a bit faster, so three years. Uh, in environment that are, say, uh, semi-arid, like, um, you know, Western Australia, for example, it's, yeah. a, bit, it's a bit longer, so uh, we give ourselves five years to, um, um, to fully restore a forest. So we, we wouldn't go and start planting the big trees that make the, the upper canopy right away. That would be a mistake. What exactly does precision planting entail? Mm. Well, mm. What's what's the difference between planting and precision <laughs> planting? So, um, in our line of work, we work with. There is two elements that are absolutely critical for success. The first one is slope, and the second one is horizons. Yeah. So, slope is um, a deep understanding of the landscape and really understanding um, w when you have. A landscape, the orientation um, from this particular landscape to the sun, how the landscape uh, collects water necessary to support the plants, and how it interacts with uh, what is already in the landscape. So um, you could have um, um, uh, a little valley, and it's it, you know two mountains on the right and the left, and it's it's a corridor for wind. So you have to be mindful of that, um, uh, and you need to understand where when it rains, where where the water goes. So we look at slopes. The second thing is horizons, and it it comes to the deep understanding of what is below the ground that we don't see. 
So the soil structure is very important. And you're going to have plants that like um, plant species that like acidic soils. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have plants that like more the alkaline. You're going to have plants that grow really well in uh, mountains and also that like to be sandy environment or muddy environment. So once we understand that, we are able to look at a landscape uh, holistically again, you know, from, to have a very broad view. Yeah. And that's when we know some species, we need to understand where the species are going to grow um, at their best in the landscape. So precision planting is that is understanding the landscape and knowing that plants that like that are more alpine are going to grow on top of the mountain. So there is no point of planting them at the bottom of the valley. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. And so mapping must be Correct. mapping must be a, a huge part of Correct. your work, of yeah. your line of work. Mm. Do you have a mapping specialist in your team? How do you do? Because I mean, exactly to that, you need to probably do three D grid, mm. you know, to to see slopes or inclinations and mm. all that. It's a mix of. Um, uh, it's interesting. Where, where it, so it's a mix of the high tech, right? So it's it's the AI that we're talking about here, yeah. um, the science. And we mix high-tech and low-tech. And um, low-tech is uh, local ecological knowledge from the traditional owners. So with every project that we do, we always consult with the traditional owners of the land. And we it's a very particip participatory project, participatory process, sorry, where we... Um, involve them and we say look we are, we're going to um, um, restore this this land are there any species that we're not aware that was there before and um, they give us insights that are not necessarily the ones that we I mean we always um, on the right track but we are not going there pretending that we know exactly. Another thing I wanted to talk about is like regenerating landscapes after bushfires. That's one of the big upsides um, of your tech solution or where it really can show what you can do mm -hmm. um, with, with technology and with what you're trying to do. How can, how can drones, I mean, you talked about it's more than just drones, like it's a whole process, but how... How can drones and how can your can, can a lot of the trees or a company like yours help in regions that have been hit pretty badly, like for example by the most recent fires? How do you exactly do approach a yeah. region like that? So what happens when you have um, fires like that, which by the way are four times more intense and come at 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 the time, you know, like the the. the They come not not only they are really big by their intensity, but they come closer and closer yeah, yeah, yeah. every year. Um, and when you have fires that are that intense, what happens is they sterilize everything that's in the soil, right? So we were talking earlier. Do you remember when I said about mycorrhizum and, yes. and all the insects that that support um, the plant kingdom? Well, after a bushfire like the one we had in Sydney back in 2019, there was absolutely nothing left. In the soil, it was Dead. sterile, yeah, absolutely sterile, yeah. sterile. A few months later, I happened to go into those burnt areas and you started to see some um, very amazing pictures on social media of people that would started to go back, you know, to, yeah. to the Blue Mountains. Yeah, yeah. And you had the dark 
black charcoal of the trunks of those trees with those beautiful um, little sh shoots that would sprout. Mm. And the contrast between the really light green and the black was absolutely amazing. Yeah, there were some amazing photos coming out. Yeah. And I wanted, I wanted to see that for myself, right? Yeah. So I yeah. went, and the thing that was absolutely shocking to me was those pictures were beautiful and what I saw was as beautiful as the picture that I was seeing on Instagram. However, the forests were dead quiet. You couldn't hear an insect. Mm. There were no birds. Mm. It was eerie. Yeah. So there was this visual beauty of, of, of the forest that, that, that was, you know, like nature is very resilient. You know, this is... Oh, yeah, we all know that. But I know what incredible. you mean. Like the perception that you get from a photo yeah. doesn't reflect the real situation. Correct. In that case. But there was, there was nothing. There yeah. was just no noise. It was so silent. And it's at this moment that you that you realize that, you know, the, the whole ecosystem, if, if it's almost like a big crank of a Swiss clock, right? If a tiny crank just doesn't work, the entire watch just stops working. Yeah. And it's exactly the same after those fires. Um you have to wait. We now have to wait months. And when I say months, I'm, I'm, it's going to take years in some parts of, of the, the land that has burned recently in Australia for mm. it to, to fully recover. And we know that after a bushfire or a wildfire that has been so strong like the one we had in, in 2019 here yeah. in Sydney, you, you have to wait um, as, a, as a person between three to four months before you go back into the, into the landscape and start replanting for those who want to start replanting by hand. And even today in some parts of Australia, so it's been, what, a couple of years, even today there are still parts of Australia where environmentalists do bring food to wildlife, you know, like yeah, yeah. carrots yeah, and, all, and stuff like that the for, yes, yeah. for, for, the, for, for the wildlife. Yeah. So um, it's going to take a lot of time for the birds because, you know, birds are not going to come if there are no insects, mm. right? And insects are not going to come because there's just no food for them. So it's it's a chain of events that are, it's a cascading chain of events or almost like dominoes that, that fall one after the other. So um, if we don't want to wait that long... Our technology allows us to um, to go back into the landscape a few days after um, um, after the wildfires. Obviously, we have to wait that the temperature goes down. Uh, the threshold that we have is sixty degrees, mm. um, and we do have seed pods that are heat resistant up to sixty degrees. Um, they are not fireproof, but they are heat resistant, meaning that they will protect um, the, the the shell around uh, the seed and the seed pod will protect uh, um, the seed that is inside for temperature up to 60 degrees. And Sorry to just butt in there because we haven't even talked about that in detail. Yep. We'll get back to that. Drones dropping seed pods. What does the seed pod look like? You yep. have to explain it to yep. us. So it's a little bit like... Um, those balls, it looks like a marble, but uh, it's soft uh, or it can be hard. It's usually soft. The ones that we made are usually soft. Um, and it looks like that little um, ball that you would put in your bath to create bubble bath. You get them in the store and then you, you push them and you're tempted to press them. <laughs> <laughs> to I, oh, you mean the ones in the soft, in the yes, soft squishy yes, gel cover? Yes, like yes, the gel yes. ones with correct, the little, yeah, membrane around the, that yeah. ones. Yeah. So it, it, it actually looks like, you know, a, 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 a capsule from a, like a medicine that yeah. has oil yeah. inside or something like that. Um, so we make these into a lab. And then we load them onto the drone and the drone goes uh, into the landscape and precisely uh, drops them 
way. So the, all the drones are pre pre-programmed. Yeah. Yeah. Based on your research, based Correct. on your mapping, Correct. knowing what to plant where, yeah. because that's also a major part. You don't want to plant just one species. That's correct. Plant. You yeah, need yeah, to yeah. need to that's, hit heterogeneous or yeah, yeah. diverse diverse uh, plant for it. Yeah. Correct. So after the wildfires, um, uh, the 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 drones are able to go into those areas and 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 to start recreating and 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 shooting seeds that would take years uh, i mean a bit between months and years for for uh, birds to come back and and do themselves so that's what i mean when i said earlier we're not here to replace like i'm not I, there is no intention for us to replace nature we we assist, e we yeah. emulate nature but we assist when there is when there has been a crisis or where, where, where yeah i think that was just important to clarify what it looks like because you know mm. maybe when you hear seed pods what what does that look like and obviously how many seed pods can a drone carry um roughly oh uh, in a day as um, a drone can shoot one hundred and sixty thousand seed pods Hundred and sixty thousand a day. Yeah, per drone. Correct. So <laughs> that's a lot of that's a lot of bird dropping. Correct. So it, it takes um, um, the the beauty with um, with technology, and and, and this is what I, why I'm fascinated by this by uh, by this. It's 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 really using um, uh, drones and AI for good, right? Mm. Um, when you look at it, the the best planter today by hand so when i'm in a planter by hand we've all seen pictures or we we've all seen a documentary of those really hard-working um, men and women that go into the landscape and they have those big bags on each side yes. uh, of a big saddle right and they have hundreds of little seedlings and they have a shovel and it's hot mm, and it's sticky mm. and there's like insects everywhere and they go and by hand they plant those little seedlings and uh, as the bags get empty someone you know mm. brings them the refill and, and they do that now it, as of today the best seeder will plant up to 800 seedlings a day Right, and and those people work from sunrise to it's sunset. It's hard work. It's really hard yeah, work, yeah. and they do an amazing work. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so I'm absolutely. I mean, my hats off to those people. I think they do an incredible job, but um, they can only work from sunrise to sunset. And when it re rains really, really hard, you can't work. Yeah, yeah. You know, when there is a storm, you can't work. I mean, um, all of those things. Now, we take when we use the seed pods. Our drones work twenty four seven. So mm. the drones, because they've been pre-programmed, they fly at night. Yeah. Right? So um, it takes a swarm of, depending where we are and, and the type of, uh, sorry, the size of drones that yes. we use, but it takes between a swarm of four to five drones yeah. to plant over a million seed pods in 48 hours. <laughs> That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Hmm. Sadly enough, we probably need that ratio, um, considering you know the rate of deforestation in the world. Hmm. So you probably that's what you were hmm. talking, uh, what we were talking about in the very beginning. You know, well, there are, there are, you know, as of today, than that. at every day. I mean, just to put things in perspective, yes. right? Every second, every second, there are twenty. There is the equivalent of twenty-seven football fields destroyed that gets yeah, uh, that, that are destroyed yeah. forever. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Forever. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that's exactly it. And, and I feel we can become very cynical, cynical with with technology and mm. AI because there's also a lot of 
negative things that come with that mm. and negative effects that we feel and um, but it's always good also to f- I find to point out you know progress mm. and a new technology mm. opens also possibilities yeah. it opens up possibilities that haven't been there before that is amazing um what I think is also interesting is the um, the, the importance of, of a variety of certain plant species and I read um, that you stated somewhere 60 percent of endangered species are 60% of endangered species are plants in New South Wales and not right. animals. So yep. um, that whole that whole argument about, you know, variety and planting the right plants and all that, I would like to go a little bit more into that. And also what role do uh, plant seed banks play? I mean, that's something, for example, the one in Norway, the Norwegian Seed Vault program, which they now have a problem because of climate change. So mm-hmm. it gets too warm then. They have to move even further north. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, what role do, 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 how important are those those banks, those plant banks, and and um, how important is the right diversity? And what are you doing um, when you replant an area to, for example, take into account climate change yep. and future climates? Yep. So because we know exactly where each species has been planted into the landscape, when we start to reintroduce species that are um, either rare, endangered or critically endangered, we know exactly where where these have been planted. So um, the work that we carry, as I said earlier, it's it's not a a thing where we just go and that's it, we've done the work and then we move on and we we go somewhere else. We we commit to spending between uh, at least three to five years um, to really build and nurture that landscape because we know know at year five, there should be around 70% uh, canopy closure. We know the um, the secondary forest is going to... Um, so by, by secondary forest, I mean trees that we've planted the first time are producing offshoots. That's the secondary... So And, and these are signs and triggers that we know that the ecosystem is recovering and we could live now and the forest is going to be... Fine, like Fine. Own, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And we look, we look at other things. You know, we monitor um, uh, uh, pollinators, the insects, the, the return of birds. We work a lot with endangered species as well. So we make sure all of this is working together, um, uh, and then that that's when we we know it's all good. Now, when it comes to the endangered species. You're right. In New South Wales, more than 60% of the endangered species are actually not animals. They are plants. So when we go into landscape, we know exactly where those plants have been planted. And we go back into the landscape and we make sure that not only those plants are surviving, but we care for them. And when they produce seeds, we collect those seeds. So to go back with the traditional owners of the land. That's when they've been involved and they know and they will collect the seeds uh, for us that we put in uh, in a seed bank. So the seed bank for um, people who don't know how it works, it's exactly like a bank. But instead of bringing your money, that's going to say into a safe and then you take it when you need it. We go to those seed banks and we bring seeds 
Um, so we have this lot of the tree seeds of different species and um, the ones that, that can be obviously stored because uh, the tropical seeds, it, it's impossible, you can't do that. Um, but for those who can, that can be stored, they are stored and when we need them, we um yeah we we just um you you start you start multiplying them and you know and and, and how or do you is there a way do you have then like a like a tree school kind of setup where you plant those and you multiply them or do you just Correct. use the amount of seeds obviously you you want to multiply the seeds that you have right yeah 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 so the ones they, they are collected in the yes. landscape that we restore all ah, right okay so speaking of high tech and low tech so you want to collect a huge Correct. number you don't have then then basically like seedling programs where you like you know no, try to multiply no, those no, no, okay no. Yeah, yeah 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 okay it's just more about like making ensuring that these seeds are still around and you still have them. Right. Can... There's something very interesting. We, we talk about, um, I, I don't know if you've heard that, but there is the intelligence of seeds. You know, no, is, I haven't heard, heard so about that. Seeds are intelligent. There is this, um, uh, there is the intelligence of seeds. And, and you can take two seeds um, of exactly the same plant and you can plant one into a landscape and you can put one into a little pot that you're going to nurture in the nursery, right? Yeah. Ten years later, those two plants, so one that has been planted in a landscape and one that has grown in the pot and, and watered, taken care of, protected from the environment, are going to produce seeds, right? Yeah. The seeds that are coming from the plant that... Uh, grew naturally in the landscape is going to produce a plant that is much stronger than the one that has grown that ah, comes from the nursery okay. we work with nurseries a lot for tropical species mm. so when you bring the seeds to the seed bank what happens is uh, they clean the seeds right so it's a process yeah. where they remove the debris which are um, um, yeah. um, the the, the Anything that would protect the seed, uh, little pieces of wood or little pieces of leaf, right? So you just want to be left with the seed. Now, those seeds are going to spend a little time in a fridge for a few days. And it's exactly what happens in the fridge that you have at home, which is there is no humidity. So that first step is going to remove the humidity of the seeds, right? Yeah. And after that, the seeds are put in a little packet with uh, you remove the air. You suck the air out, and then they get put into a freezer at minus 20 degrees, and exactly like that seed bank you were talking about yes. before in, in Norway. And then um, those seeds can last for in the vault for up to 100 years. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So these are the stocks. That's why I call the stocks. Now, when you work with tropical species, it'd be different. You cannot do that. Those species are not equipped to withstand temperature that go below say oh, 10 okay. degrees so yeah. so we have to work with nurseries at this stage and we take those seeds to the nursery the nursery makes seedlings and we replant those seedlings by hand yes. with the with the help of the traditional owners of the land indigenous communities all of this sounds like an absolute no-brainer <laughs> we we should we we should get we should get a, a million drones and just have massive programs and uh and, you know go for it um a, how much have your ideas been taken on board by by politics and by politicians <laughs> and by decision makers? And B, I mean, we have to point out, a lot of the trees is not an NGO. No. No, you are a business. Mm -hmm. So you have to make money to do what you're doing. Mm -hmm. 
But who who are the clients you're working with? That's obviously important to point out. And uh, please answer the first question. It should be a no-brainer. How has this been taken on board by decision makers? We're getting there. We're getting there. So we are. Um, we've we are actually working with two councils in Australia that are very very proactive. Um, yeah. um, it's um, the. Sunshine Coast Council mm-hmm. and Townsville Council from Queensland. Yeah. We are working with those two councils. We are starting next month, um, and um, we are working with them for two of their 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 their, their ecosystems that are um, uh, in critical conditions. Um, in um, the Sunshine Coast. The council is buying back land that was previously that that had been um, uh, sold to farmers, and for the last eighty years, this land was farmed for uh, sugarcane, very close to um, the ocean. Um, that land is so damaged because of all the fertilizers, and what happens is. Um, that land was cheap because it used to be uh, wetlands that were, uh, where, where mangroves were growing, right? So they've closed the estuaries, they've completely dried out the land, and on top of that, you have 80 years of heavy chemical and pesticides. And unless you grow sugarcane or anything that needs, you know, that those uh, industrial fertilizer to grow, nothing will naturally grow. So what happens is the council um, uh, is very proactive and is buying back those lands. They are opening the channels again to allow the tides to come in and out. Um, it will r- bring the salinity again uh, into those wetlands. And we are coming in to um, uh, to drop... S- s- to, to drop mangroves. Mm. So it's very different from the work that we do with trees on land. When you work with mangroves, it's a completely different ecosystem. We, we work with mud. Um, we, we shoot the, the seeds, which are called propagules, the seeds of the mangroves, um, into the mud. You have to wait. Uh, it has to be low tide. It cannot be high tide. So there's a, a lot of different things that happened. Um, in, in Townsville, it's very different. Uh, the land that we are going to uh, to restore there has been uh, damaged from hurricanes um, mm. and, and um, um, all, all sorts of weather events. And it's really hard for the red mangroves in particular, that, that's the one, that's the species we, we're working with, to, it's a very slow process. So it's the red mangrove is the one that is the furthest away from land that has its feet and its roots um, really deep in the water. And when the tide goes out and comes back in, because it is at the fringe, the window of opportunity for the propagules Ooh, that yeah. grow on, on the, the parent trees as to fall at the right time and it is so <laughs> you know the windows of opportunity is so yeah, yeah, small yeah. that it 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 literally takes uh tens of i mean it's it, it decades for, for it to regenerate by itself so we're going there to assist with with the drones yeah. now now the the special um uh, cedar that we have built for this particular species can shoot a hundred and 50 propagules yep. in a minute and a half. Ooh. Yeah. That that assists nature quite a bit, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that like a good, it's good assistance. But it's very strategic, right? So yeah, so yeah. we we're, we're going to go there and um 
tide, go tide is high tide, we can wait is low tide, and just then that's when you the drone to the work. work. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. we're gonna yeah. go back every six months to to monitor the, the yeah. landscape and go back yeah. and and see what happens. Um, so. In a way, to go back to your question, it's it's very encouraging to see uh, those councils being very proactive and and actually very excited about the the possibilities yeah. of what could happen with tech. Um, From the private sector, do you have farmers oh, reaching yes. out to you? Yes. Do you have because obviously that's that's one of the biggest issues with deforestation. We talked about this um, previously on this podcast as well. That the majority of the land is mm. privately owned, so. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of the issues come from, you know, land clearing and that's yep. on private property. So mm. that makes the whole process of reforestation pretty, pretty tricky. So um, do you also work with a lot of the farmers or yep. in the private sector? So there is four uh, categories of clients or uh, yeah. we work with. The first one are uh, the mining companies. So uh, when a mine closes, yeah. it has to uh, give back to the traditional owners of the land uh, uh, something that is will never be the way it was before, especially for open camp mines. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we help the mining companies to uh, reforest um, um, the, 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 the mine. area. Yeah. yeah, the area. The second one are um, the f governments. So mm -hmm. we're talking after a wildfire or a bushfire, like we yeah. talked earlier. The third one are farmers. So it's very interesting for farmers because we can use or we can assist um, with the drone technology to do precision planting of their crops. So there is two things here. We can do precision planting. So think of things that need to be planted in a row, right? Okay. And we can do non-precision planting as well. So think of rice. You know where where you just have to scatter the the seeds into yeah, into yeah. a paddock. Um, the drones ca can can do that. The what the drones can do as well, and that comes back to AI, is they can fly, say for example, onto an orchard. They can analyze the state of the orchard, and they've spotted three trees um, in this big property that are sick, like the leaves are yellow instead of being green. So when the report comes, the drones know, okay, those three trees are under attack, for example, and we have a special drone that can just go and spray only the sick trees. Right? Oh, okay. So instead of using... Yeah, um, yeah like, a, like instead of spraying the whole yes, lot, you can correct. just do it precisely correct. as well. And you can do that as well. So there is a problem at the moment... Um, in Queensland with uh, some of the wetlands that are so saturated with some of the chemicals that are coming from um, from agriculture that carry back currents, yeah. they can't cope and you have this uh, influx of weeds and, and um, uh, you know, algae that mm. take over and mm. suffocate the wetlands. So at the moment, um, what they've done is they bring a, an helicopter and oh, they, okay, put, course, yeah. they put the, the, the chemicals into the helicopters and you have the helicopters flying, you know, with, with two big arms on, 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 on each side of the mm -hmm. helicopters. But the helicopters is going to spray. As, they kind of know where is the area, but it's not precision spraying. Because yeah, they can't go as low as a drone can, for example, and Correct. be precise in that area. They and, have and, to but, do from higher up. They but they're going to spray. Higher. They're going to spray a, a bigger yeah. area. So yeah. you're actually creating... A, 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 it is part of the solution, but you're not really um, a, a spot 
f uh, f focusing on, on the area of consent. What we can do with with the drone is is actually that precision. It's mm. all about being precise. Yeah, that uh, makes like sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And the last uh, people we work with are uh, organizations um, that are involved with uh, all ground forest protection. Okay. Yeah. So we do work with um, a foundation in the Dentry rainforest. We have work. Um, uh, we're doing some work with them to uh, to restore part of the dentry that has been same thing um, um, logged for uh, cattle and for sugarcane. Um, and we do some work overseas uh, in Borneo with the Orangutan Foundation as yeah. well. It's a great yeah. project, and we do have a, a work uh, coming up in Mexico as well for a company that produces mezcal. And uh, it's it's fascinating. I hope the trade-off is that you get a little <laughs> bit of that back <laughs> in addition to your payment. But it, it's yeah. interesting. It's a very fascinating story. So yeah. uh, uh, mezcal is made from... Uh, agave. Uh, from the agave plant. Yeah. It's the same, same agave, but a bit different from, from the, the ones that are used for tequila, right? And it's pollinated those... Uh, and, and they only grow in mezcal, right? So it's a little bit like champagne in mm -hmm. French. You, you can only make champagne in the champagne, in the champagne area. Yeah, yeah. And Everything else is called a sparkling wine. Now, in Mexico, you have this uh, little tiny region in uh, the Oaxaca, central of Mexico, Oaxaca, right? Oaxaca yeah, yes, yeah. which is um, which is where, where they make mezcal. Now, you have a, a, a species of bats, which is endangered, that actually migrate every year from the south of Mexico all the way to the south of America, so mm. uh, Texas, uh, namely. And um, as they fly, that's when they pollinate those plants. Oh, wow. So you have that very limited window Correct. for that very limited area. Correct. Now, what you need... Pollination. and 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 this is one of their main... Uh, this is the key species for 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 this particular um, for this particular plant. Now, what happens is in the landscape moving forward, you have pressure from population, right? So mm. um, infrastructure and housing, namely. So people who build roads, highways, and houses, they don't really want those agaves in their garden, so they destroy them. So that means there is suddenly no food for those little bats. Now, if the bats decline, the whole economy of Mexico starts to go down because the number one crop in Mexico Oh, sorry, the, the number one produce in Mexico that goes to export is tequila. And that happened a few years ago yeah. when the, the farmers couldn't understand why the, the, the production was going down. And the fact was that they were, st they were killing the bats. Yeah. So we are now going, there is a, a change of, of, uh, of mind where they realize the importance of the bat. So we are going to help this company um, uh, in Mexico to uh, understand the landscape yeah. of, of that is critical for the bats that actually supports their production. So without the bat, without a healthy environment for the bats, there is no escal, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So we are going this analysis, we are, we are going to do this analysis of the landscape and we're doing that in partnership with the... Um, uh, a company called an organization called BCI, Bat Conservation International, and we're working hand in hand with them to uh, understand the landscape. So um, we're going to use our drones to do um, mapping of the area from the south of Mexico all the way to the south of America, and then we are going to look for opportunities um, for 
restoring the the ecosystem that that will sustain the bats, namely by planting more more of the agaves. Emmerich, thank you so much for taking the time, and I really hope Pleasure. that that it will catch on more and um, all the best in helping to to assist reforestation. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com, or you can find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. Also, please leave us a review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.